The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 6 that we should teach our children when we walk along the path, when we get up, when we lie down, basically everywhere we go. And I think it is so cool to see moms and dads and children coming together and saying, hey, let's worship together. Let's sing together. And so it's a privilege and an honor to be able to do so together and to have them on stage with us today. I want to begin by sharing with you a story. Alexander uh, Solzhenitsyn probably contributed more to the collapse of the Iron Curtain in the Soviet Union than any other individual ever. But well before the fall of communism in 1991, he found himself in a Russian concentration camp many years before, not all that dissimilar from a German concentration camp that was, uh, became infamous in World War II and took the lives of over 6 million Jews, 11 million total people, uh, during the Holocaust. But anyway, Solzhenitsyn was arrested as a young man and horribly mistreated for about eight years in a Russian concentration camp in the late 40s, early 50s because of his views and writings about communism and his Russian government that were considered subversive and illegal by his government. And while in that prison, he had to struggle with backbreaking labor and organized strategic slow starvation. Well, one day the hopelessness became too much for him and he saw no purpose in continuing to fight and struggle to survive. So he laid down his shovel and he walked over to a worksite bench and sat down in exhaustion and defeat. He knew that at any moment a Russian guard would come over and order him back to work and that if he refused or even hesitated, the guard would undoubtedly bludgeon him to death, probably with his own shovel. He'd seen that happen a number of times to others. As he sat with his head down and his eyes closed, awaiting the fate that he had kind of resigned himself to, he felt a presence near him. He lifted his head and opened his eyes, and next to him sat an unfamiliar old man with a wrinkled and utterly expressionless face. No words were spoken, but the older man hunching over took a stick and drew a simple cross in the dirt in front of the feet of Solzhenitsyn. As Alexander stared at that cross, his entire perspective began to change. He knew he was still only one man against the mighty Russian Empire, and that he might not ever get out of that prison, but... Also at that moment, he knew that the hope of all mankind before him and after him rested in the hope that we find in the cross of Jesus. And that because of what that cross of Jesus symbolized, anything was possible. So after a moment, he slowly got up, picked up his shovel, and went back to work, not knowing at that time that his writings on truth and freedom and man's need for God would one day change the world. And in fact, the Iron Curtain and the Berlin Wall both would, would, be, would come crashing down in large part because of some of what he did. Such is the power of the cross of Jesus. Maybe I'm talking to somebody today in here who is somewhat discouraged. Maybe you're... Um, Troubled with your financial picture, 
Maybe, uh, maybe you're filled with grief because of the loss of a loved one or maybe worried about a wayward family member or um, a, a difficult diagnosis. Maybe you're a young person, a student, uh, a child who's in the room. Today is our, our quarterly um, children's service or family service. Maybe you're a young person in here and, and you're feeling down because you got in trouble recently, maybe on the way to church today. You know, or, or maybe you're feeling down because you've got some big homework assignment that you've been putting off and you know that it's due soon and that's heavy. Or maybe, maybe there's a group of friends you're trying to fit in with and having trouble with or getting picked on by or something along that line. Well, if you are distressed today for any reason, no matter who you are, no matter what age you are, For the next few minutes, I want you to also, like Alexander Solzhenitsyn, look at the cross, this cross, and think of the cross that Jesus, our Savior, died on and find comfort in it. Today is our quarterly family service, one of them, and if you're new here to Impact, I want you to know that we love family. Um, We don't do this often, but when we do, it's a really special occasion Our children are usually downstairs doing some great things uh, with the leadership of Debbie Blackwell and her team that work in Kids Zone. But today we want to have everybody in the room together and, uh, and, and just celebrate family. Whether you be a traditional family, you know, with mom and dad and a child or two or five or whatever, or whether you be family in some other capacity, or whether you be here as an individual and are here as part of the church family, the family of God, we want to celebrate family today. You know, I have a brother and a sister that I grew up with that I love dearly. I have a, a, a beautiful wife and two young bo- two grown, almost grown actually, becoming young men. And, uh, and I love them, but I praise God also that I have hundreds of other brothers and sisters, all those that were in, in first service and all of you here now as well. And so we want to celebrate the fact that we can all be brothers and sisters or children of God Um, and part of a family service in that respect. So whether you're 8 or 80 or anywhere in between, I want you to feel welcomed and know that we love you. And that's not to slight anybody who's under 8 or over 80. I mean, all of us, in other words, are part of God's family, and it's a privilege to get to be together. So unlike most Sundays, we have a lot of children in the room with us, and I want you, in just a moment, to help me welcome them and make them feel welcomed by, um, by doing this. You don't have to get up or anything, but if you're not a child and you're sitting near one, close to one, that within reach, arm's length or whatever, would you give them a fist bump or a high five or at least at a bare minimum, make a lot of noise with your hands and let the children in the room know that we love them, that we're glad they're here. Come on, make some more noise. You can do more than that. Kids, we love you. I love all these kids. I, I just, you know, Jesus loved children. I love children. I hope we all do. And uh, it is a privilege to be able to be together with the kids in the room together. You know, last week we began a series of messages about perspectives of the cross. And in this series, we're going to look at some of the perspectives that people may have had in the first century when they were actually there and they witnessed with their own eyes the story that we read about in Scripture. And we, through their perspectives, hope to be able to be changed and to be encouraged and maybe to be challenged looking at the cross that Jesus died on, maybe somewhat like that, with a different perspective than what we would have had otherwise. Last week, we talked about the soldiers who crucified Jesus. 
and how they were undoubtedly unmoved by the cross. And today I want us to look at or talk about Jesus' disciples and how they were distressed by the cross. See, the soldiers had hard hearts, hard hearts, whereas these disciples had heavy hearts. It was such a difficult situation for them. And I want us to feel their emotion, understand as best we can their thoughts, and look at it from their perspective. But mostly I want us to experience their elation, their joy, their excitement when they finally discovered the true meaning and purpose of the cross, which we'll get to toward the end. You know, it's incredible to me, though, that the cross, which originally was an emblem of suffering and shame and torture and death, all of that has become an incentive for endurance, a symbol of love, a source of pride. I mean, Paul said in Galatians 6, may I never boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was proud of and wanted to boast about the cross of Jesus. That's what we do today. Uh, many of you are wearing crosses on your necklace or we have them in our homes, obviously in churches. Everywhere we look, we see crosses because we are proud of what the cross represents, even though at one point it was only an instrument of death and torture. Nobody would have ever thought of wearing a cross around their neck or being proud of it, and yet we do today because of what happened on one particular cross. I think when Jesus' disciples, however, initially saw him hanging and dying on the cross, their reaction was not so much one of grief and sorrow. That was maybe part of it, but I think their primary reaction was really more about disillusionment. I think they were really lost as to know what to even think. They were convinced that He was the Messiah, the Savior of the world. They said that numerous times. They, they understood that to a sense, to a point. I mean, they had seen Him do all kinds of miracles. They had witnessed when He turned water into wine, the first miracle, all the way to when He did things like telling Lazarus, who had been dead for four years, to come out of a grave. He, he, uh, he caused a man who was dead to rise from the grave. They had seen Jesus not only do that, but heal all kinds of people. They had seen him walk on water and even talk to a storm and tell it to stop. And it obeyed him. The glassy water was all they saw in that moment, just like that. I mean, it's incredible what they had seen. And so they had seen his power, they'd heard his teachings, and they were convinced that he was the Messiah. As the Old Testament and, and for generations, as they had heard and been taught for generations, and yet they didn't quite really get all that or connect all the dots. They failed to understand what him being the Messiah really meant. I mean, they thought it meant that he was going to be a political leader, you know, a ruler to overthrow the hated Roman government and free God's people from tyranny and, you know, all that at the hands of the Romans and reestablish the reign of King David in Israel. That's what they had in their head. Numerous times they asked him about that. They even argued about, hey, uh, when that day comes, can I sit on your left? No, I want to sit on the left. You sit on the right and all that kind of stuff and those kinds of things, missing the point and completely overlooking all that had been taught and shared with them in the present tense from Jesus, but also through all that was said in the Old Testament, which they were familiar with. Things like the fact that the Bible said he would be betrayed and killed, led like a sheep to the slaughter, despised and rejected by men. Quotes from Isaiah 53 that they were undoubtedly familiar with, but not in tune with at that moment. No matter how many times he explained it to them, 
he being Jesus, they just, his disciples just didn't get it. They just didn't understand. Uh, now, these are amazing men. Don't misunderstand me. I, these are amazing men that God did amazing things through. But in that moment, and you and I would have been the same if we had been there, but in that moment, they were a little slow. They were even a little bit dense, you might say. I mean, when he talked about dying and being raised from the dead three days later, they just assumed he was talking figuratively, you know, a figure of speech in some respect. Kind of like when we say things like before a ball game, you know, something silly like, hey, my team's going to kill your team. You know, your team's going to get slaughtered today. You know, we're not talking about death, not really. We're just talking about one team losing badly. And that's what they seemed to think Jesus was talking about. Just some figurative thing. I don't quite know what he means, but obviously not the real thing. That's what they had in their head. We see it over and over in Scripture. Let me show you one instance. In Luke chapter 9, verse 43, the Bible says, While everyone was marveling at everything he, Jesus, was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Listen to me. Listen and remember what I say. The Son of Man, that was his favorite term for himself, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. But they didn't know what he meant. Over and over we see that. He told them clear and plain what was going to happen, and they just didn't get it. They never seemed to really understand. They misunderstood him every time. It's kind of like when I went to the Olive, Gort, Olive Garden once when I was a, a young guy. It was a long time ago, but, and it's a true story, but I went to the Olive Garden one time and, and uh, had not been there, I don't guess, before. I don't remember if I'd ever been there before. But anyway, at one point, the waiter turned to me and he said, super salad. And I said, um, you know, it's like a question. And I was like, uh, no, thanks. Um, and he was like, oh, you don't? And I go, well, no, just, I'll, just, I'll just have a regular one. And he was like, what? And I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, soup or salad? And I go, no, I don't need a super salad. I just need a regular one, I guess. I don't even really like salad. And he goes, no, no. I'm saying, do you want a soup or do you want a salad? And I was like, oh, well, I didn't understand. I thought he meant something like out of a Marvel movie, like, you know, some kind of super salad or, you know, some kind of special salad. I'm like, I don't even really like salad. But anyway, and the point is that it's easy to misunderstand people or to be misunderstood by people, even when they talk very plainly. And that was what was happening here. So when Jesus was arrested at about 9 o'clock at night, and his disciples saw him hanging on a cross by the next morning, they were not only shocked, I think they were disillusioned. I think they were completely shell-shocked or blown away, despondent and distressed, but confused. Even though Jesus had told them over and over very, very clearly, plainly, like this in Mark 14 when he said, you will all fall away. Somebody say all. all. All means all, right? He's talking to them and he says, you will all fall away for it is written. In the Old Testament he quoted, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He clearly told them what was going to happen and yet they didn't get it. In fact, Peter argued with him a little bit. I mean, Peter said in verse 30, even if all, everybody else do fall, does fall away, I will not. You can count on me, in other words. I will never do that. And I'm sure at some point later, when everything started to unfold, we've read the book. You know, they didn't know it at that time. But when it all started to unfold, I would guess they went back to this moment in their memory and were like, ah, oh, wow. 
I remember when he said, but especially Peter. Because Peter not only argued once, he argued twice. Let me show you. Jesus, knowing Peter, he said to him kind of one of these things. And he said, I tell you the truth, today, yes, tonight, Peter, before the rooster crows thrice, three times, you yourself will disown me three times. But the Bible says Peter stood his ground and insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Yeah, that's right. Me too. No way. No chance. No way am I going to do that. But then, because we've read the book, we know the story. We know Jesus took his disciples. They went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he asked his disciples to pray. He knew what was about to unfold. And this is such a heavy moment. And they still didn't get it. And they were falling asleep. And he was disappointed in that. And and shortly thereafter, ironically, he was betrayed by one of his own, even more ironic, in that he was betrayed by a kiss. Judas came to him, kissed him on the cheek, uh, an act of love and commitment and all that, and yet that's what began the whole process then of him dying on a cross. And the Bible says in verse 50 of that same chapter, then everyone including all these who just swore their allegiance. Everyone deserted him and fled. As Jesus had predicted, Peter, in fact, shortly thereafter, probably just a few hours later, heard the rooster indeed crow. The rooster we see there on top of this. He heard a rooster crow. He saw Jesus. They locked eyes right when Peter, as had been predicted, denied Jesus for the third time. The same Peter who had said, never, even if everybody else does, never, no, even if I have to die, no way. So, the question becomes, how did all that happen? I mean, what's wrong with these guys? How did they so quickly and easily do the opposite of what they had promised? Were they maybe pathological liars? I mean, they knew all along they were going to deny him, and they were just blowing smoke and, you know, saying stuff that they knew was not true. No, I don't think so, not at all. Maybe they were just spineless wimps, you know, just really weak. But no, I don't think that's true either. I think the point is that they were utterly disillusioned, confused, completely just lost as to what to even think about this. That's the reason they literally, at least temporarily, fell apart and scattered and ran in every direction Scripture teaches. They got scared and took off, going their own way. And I would guess that at some point while they were off hiding somewhere, they probably had that feeling, maybe you've had that before, that, that, that pain in the pit of your stomach where you just know that you've done something terrible and you regret it. Maybe not always enough to do anything about it, but you feel terrible. I would guess they all were in that moment. Because when Jesus needed them most, they abandoned him. In his worst moment here on this earth, when he most needed his friends, they left him hanging to dry. Have you ever felt bad, maybe sick to your stomach because you let somebody down? I mean, really, really abandoned them in their need and, and felt sick to your stomach about it? I hope not. It's a terrible feeling. But when I was in eighth grade, just a kid, when I was in eighth grade, I had a 
I started to say friend. I had a, an acquaintance, a, a classmate of mine. We weren't really buddies, but we kind of hung out a little bit. Anyway, I had a buddy named Ryan who, for whatever reason, just had it out for my brother, my brother Barry. Some of you know Barry, some of you don't. But my little brother Barry was only in fifth grade, and Ryan and a couple of other buddies in particular just had it out for Barry. They just didn't like him for no good reason. Well, one day, um, Barry was walking home, uh, actually riding his bicycle home from school uh, on a route that we didn't often take over an old, mostly dilapidated old bridge that was almost never used anymore. And he was riding his bike, and Ryan and one other buddy happened to meet Barry on that bridge. And they stopped him, detained him, and, and you know, again, they're eighth graders. He's just a fifth grader, and they started messing with him. You know, later they said, we were just having fun, just messing around, didn't mean anything by it. But they started messing with him, uh, pushing him around, that kind of stuff, saying all kinds of mean things to him or whatever. And eventually, at one point, they actually took his bicycle and threw it over the bridge into the water. And, uh, you know, he's just freaking out as a kid. And then they thought, well, let's one-up that and have some more fun. They picked him up by his ankles and held him over the bridge, threatening to drop him to his death as a fifth grader, just terrorizing him. And um, I wasn't there that day. I didn't hold Barry over the bridge, but I might as well have in that I had opportunity many times to say, hey, Ryan, and Scott, there were a couple other guys. Hey, leave Barry alone. You know, I could have stood up for my brother and probably stopped those kind of things from happening because I saw it happening numerous times, but I never did. And, and um, I don't even like to talk about the story a whole lot because I, I still today feel so bad about it. Now, Barry and I have talked a lot about it. And honestly, he has a hard time even remembering the story because it traumatized him so much as a kid. But uh, but we've talked about it, and, and he's forgiven me. I've apologized. But I tell you what, I still feel sick to my stomach when I think about the fact that I could have prevented that, and I didn't. When Barry needed his big brother, he needed anybody, a friend. There was nobody. I, in particular, should have been there for him, but I abandoned him. was nowhere to be found. I don't know if you've ever let anybody down like that. I hope not. It is a sickening feeling. Um, fortunately, they didn't drop him as they could have. When I say I don't know if you've ever done that or not, actually, you know, that's not true. I, I know that you have done that. Every one of us have done that. You ask, well, how do you know that? How do you, you don't know my stories. I know that because I know what Scripture says. Look at it with me. The Bible says in Romans 3, for all. Somebody say the word all. For all, that includes you and me, all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And say it again with me. How many of us? All of us like sheep in Isaiah 53. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Just like the disciples that day. Even worse than the way I failed my brother, I have failed my Lord Jesus. And that breaks my heart even more. And and you and I are all together in the same boat. And you know what the Bible says about such things? That, you know, these mistakes are called sin. And the Bible says the wages, in other words, the, the, what, what you get in return for your doings, 
the wages, or you could say the paycheck that you receive for what you have done, is death. Is death. But, and then there's a really good part to that. But before we look at the good part of that sentence, let's, focus, let's think about that for a minute. The wages of sin is death. In fact, I want you to look back with me. I'll show you on the screen what God tells us in Isaiah again. Who has to pay for that mistake? The wages of sin is death. That's what happens when we sin. And the Bible says all of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We've all left God's path to follow our own. And yet the Lord has laid on who? The iniquity? Who pays for the penalty? Not, not you. Not me. Laid on Him. On Him. On Jesus, our Lord and Savior. He paid for what you and I have done. Jesus is the one who got what we deserved. God should have laid on me, should have laid on you the weight or the consequence of sin. We should have to pay for our own mistakes, right? Isn't that the way it should work? And yet, and yet, we don't get what we deserve. God laid on him the weight of what we did. Jesus truly paid it all. That's what it means when the Bible tells us that death is deserved, and yet, or the word is but, and whenever you see the, the word but in a sentence like that, you need to probably circle it or underline it because what comes next may even be more important. Usually is. It's the real essence of the point being made. And that is this, but, while death is deserved, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The greatest gift of all time, I mean in, in the history of gift giving, is what God did for us in sending Jesus to die for us on the cross. Amen? That is the greatest gift any of us have ever even been able to imagine, let alone be given. Now, our mistakes are still big mistakes. Don't, don't underscore, forget that. Our mistakes are huge. Don't forget that. But while we feel terrible about those mistakes, while I feel terrible about what I did to my brother or failed to do, I feel even worse about what I did, and I hope you all feel the same way in terms of what we have done that led to Jesus dying on a cross, literally being nailed, nailed to a cross, much like what we see here. But do you want to hear some good news? I mean, do you want to hear some good news, or do you like just really heavy stuff? Do you want to hear some good news? Because there is some good news, too. The good news is this, that, that while our mistakes are big mistakes, we don't want to forget that or underestimate the power or significance of our mistakes. Those are in place, but God's grace is bigger than our mistakes. Amen? God's grace is bigger. Our mistakes, in fact, plus God's grace equals the wonderful story of salvation that's where it all comes down. That's what it all comes down to. The power of the gospel of Jesus is about our mistakes plus God's grace. That's what it looks like. In fact, in 1 John 1, 9, the Bible tells us if we confess our sins, in other words, if we own them, if we come clean, if we admit them, and, and, and we need to repent of them, all these things, if we confess our sins, the Bible says, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify or cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's good news. Amen? That is such good news. And I want to show you the verse right before the verse that we already looked at from the book of Isaiah. We read um, about each of us being like sheep going our own way and abandoning Jesus just like his disciples abandoned him. But look at the very preceding verse. It's verse 5 of that chapter in Isaiah. 
It says, but he, referring to Jesus in a prophetic sense, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed or forgiven. We are healed and protected from what should have been death. That's, that's what we deserve. The wages of our mistakes should be our own death. But by his wounds... We are healed. So I think God, if he took the microphone right now and spoke to us, I wish I had the voice of James Earl Jones or something so I could make it sound better, but, um, but I think if God had a, had an oppor- wanted to take the opportunity, of course he could do this, if he wanted to right now utter verbally or audibly words for us, I think he might say something like this. Don't take your eyes off of that cross that my son Jesus died on for you. Look at it. Look at it right now and keep your eyes fixed on it. Don't ever forget that he died a terrible death for you and that your sin is why he died. But, again, circle, underline that word. When somebody says that, this is the essence of the main point. But don't lose confidence in the power of that cross as well. I don't want you, I think God would say this, I don't want you to just feel bad about your mistakes. I want you to confess them, repent of them, and turn from them. But then I want you to know the power of the cross. So keep your eyes fixed on the cross. And remember that it is by the wounds that my son endured for you that he died on that cross for you so that you can be healed and forgiven and cleansed or purified from all unrighteousness. And then I think God would remind us of things he said like this in Colossians 3. He said, so fix your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And, and remember, like this in 1 John 2, the world and its desires pass away. All these things that we enjoy, that we focus on, that we get so hung up on, they are all passing away from dust to dust. But the man or woman or child, but the person who does the will of God lives forever Isn't that good news? The Roman Empire looked incredibly powerful to the disciples and the other Christ followers or Christians of that day. I mean, it was the most powerful empire the world had ever seen. And yet it fell. It fell. I've been there and seen it. Many of you have as well. It fell. It is a bunch of rubble at this point. But the cross of Jesus still stands and always will. To Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Iron Curtain and the Russian communism that he was facing looked insurmountable, too powerful. He was just one person against another great empire that, you know, maybe would never fall or so it might have seemed. But he stood with confidence and and when he was reminded of the power of the cross just simply by it being drawn in the dirt in front of him, He stood with confidence and boldness for what God had called him to. And eventually, surprise, surprise, it shouldn't be, but it probably was to him, the Soviet Union and the Berlin Wall also collapsed while the cross of Jesus still stands. And today in our world, our our, uh, enemy is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for whom he can devour masquerading as an angel of light. And there's all kinds of stuff in our world today that is kind of scary, whether it be our government or other governments as well, that can cause many of us as Christians to go, oh man, what in the world? Our world's falling apart. Our country's going, 
you know, to a bad place and a basket and all that. I mean, we, we can look at these kinds of things and get nervous about it. But the truth is that the cross of Jesus will continue to stand no matter whether it be the Roman Empire, the Russian Empire, the United States Empire. It does not matter. The cross of Jesus will never stand or will always stand. Always stand. And, and it is our Savior who died on a cross that we need to fix our eyes on who not only died on that cross, but who rose from the grave three days later. We need to remember that for the, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There is so much wisdom in understanding that truth. Just because others think of it to be, think it to be foolish does not mean that it is such. It is the power of God. You know, the disciples shrugged the, you know, their shoulders in disbelief. They didn't understand what was going on. They ran and they hid and all that. They struggled in that moment when Jesus was being tortured and murdered on that cross. So they fled. They abandoned him when he needed them. And they failed to keep their eye on him or on the cross. And they hid. The Bible talks about them even being behind locked doors. They were in hiding and fear and all of that. And yet... Jesus and the story was not done. And Jesus did not treat them as you or I might have been tempted and prompted to want to treat somebody who had abandoned us. No, he didn't do what we might have done. He rose from the grave as he had promised, and then he came to them and loved them, even to the point of saying, Thomas, if you need to, come here. You want to put your fingers in the nail holes here in, the, in my side? What? He loved them and forgave them. And they were transformed in a whole new way to wholly, completely different people. When they learned that Jesus was stronger than death and that a cross, nor a grave, nor enemies, nor locked doors, nothing could hold him back or stop him, they finally understood what he had been trying to say to them all this time. And it finally clicked and they became different people. He was indeed the Messiah just as they had known all along, but he was a different kind of Messiah than what they had thought initially. His kingdom was way bigger and longer lasting and more important than anything Rome or later Russia or the United States or anything else could stand for. His kingdom has no end. And a boldness and a courage and a passion came over them like had never been seen. And God did absolutely amazing, I mean incredible things, through these flawed and imperfect men who had at one point abandoned and ran away from Jesus and what was happening to him. So today, we need to look at the cross and remember how terrible it was for Jesus that he died on that for us. But we don't stop there. We need to look at the cross with an empty tomb in our mind as well, remembering that Jesus did not stay dead. There, th that's where our hope and our excitement and our joy comes from. That's why we don't have a crucifix. We have a cross because the grave is empty. He died on the cross, but he didn't stay dead. Jesus is alive. Is anybody else thankful for that truth? He is alive. And we will celebrate that even more on Easter in just a couple of weeks, a few weeks but even today, as we think about the fact that he is alive, we celebrate and honor that truth. And yet we pause and we remember what he did for us on the cross. I think as the disciples began to really understand 
And it finally started to click in their mind. Oh, now I understand what he meant. That's what he meant when he said, and all these conversations that they had had with him came full circle and and, came into focus. I think in that moment, it started to click and their perspective, their passion, their boldness went beyond what it ever could have been before. You know, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 9, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, that's hard to fully understand and even harder to preach about or explain. But God has said that if we sin, we die. And he's also said that life is in the blood. And he's also explained that that his justice cannot be satisfied without a perfect blood sacrifice. There is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. That's why in the Old Testament, God led his people to sacrifice animals in the temple on, on, on altars, preparing them to recognize and honor the perfect lamb that was to come. That they didn't quite understand at that point, but the perfect sacrifice for all sin would be his one and only son who would die once and for all for all of us. Jesus was the perfect Lamb of God, but again, He was initially led like a sheep to the slaughter. And we need to understand and really recognize the personal nature and depth of what happened that day. His blood was shed from from His body for you and me. This table is something that Debbie and the other volunteers use downstairs to help our young people understand. And I, I want to encourage you, if you want, at the end of the service to come and look at it. Maybe you imagine yourself washing your hands in the jar and wiping them off like Pilate did, washing your hands. Up. It's not my fault. I didn't do anything. Or maybe you, maybe, maybe, maybe you look at the crown of thorns. This, by the way, is, uh, as I understand it, actually the type of thorn that is in Israel, was shipped over here. You can come and see these things and imagine that being thrust down onto his head to the point that blood is just pouring. Or maybe you, maybe you pick up this. We've got two different variations of what the cat of nine tails might have looked like. But basically it was a whip with bone and, and other things maybe glass or rocks or other things embedded into it so that when it was slapped onto somebody, it would dig in and literally rip flesh off of the victim's body. I mean, it's a horrific thing. Maybe you need to come and hold one of these. Look at this and imagine what Jesus endured for you or me. Or, or maybe you pick up the hammer and Nails, and we're not talking little 16-penny nails, but we're talking about big stakes, maybe something like that, and imagine those being driven through your wrists, through your feet. And think about what Jesus endured for you. Or or maybe the 30 pieces of silver here that Judas betrayed him for. Or you imagine the the times that the soldiers were punching him in the face saying, who hit you? As they bloodied his nose or you know, whatever, knocked his teeth out or whatever they did to him. The Bible says he was not even recognizable. The beating he endured was probably beyond anything any of us have ever seen. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 1, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold 
that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. In other words, Jesus didn't pay for your sin with riches, with all that was, he didn't empty his pockets of all that he had or, or have to give you, you know, maybe something else that we would consider a high price, you know, all of his time or energy or whatever, be put in prison or something. No, he didn't pay for it in any such way. He paid for it instead. What does the Bible say in verse 19? But with the precious blood, I mean his blood poured out of those wounds, the blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was perfect in every way and he spilled his blood for you and I. And I believe when the disciples truly understood what he had done for them, that is what transformed and changed them into the men that they became. Men who, who stood for and lived for and honored Jesus in every way that they, they could think of. And they went from being discouraged when he went to the cross to being encouraged when he rose from the grave. They went from being fearful to being fearless from horrific to heroic, from depressed to determined, from cowardly to courageous, and from unreliable to unflappable. And they set a model. They, they, they modeled for us or set an example for us to follow in that God wants us to stand for Him and do whatever He asks us to do because when we look at the cross, we think, what did Jesus do for me? Wow, that's what He did for me? Then what, what can I possibly do for Him? What would I possibly not be willing to do for him? Is there anything? That's where we should all be. And we need to take to heart the scripture in Hebrews 12 that helps us understand we don't just feel guilty, but we, we move forward and we honor him with our life. And we do what the disciples did, which was fix our eyes on Jesus. Not just the cross, not even just the thorns or the, the nails or any of those things, but we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him. I, I find it amazing that there would be joy in the context of what he was anticipating and looking forward to. But because of his love for us, the Bible says that he had joy that was set before him, and he, based on that joy, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sits now at the right hand of the throne of God. Before we close, I want to share with you another story. A, a friend and mentor of mine named Bob Russell told me a story about a, about a funeral he did. A funeral he did for a young lady who was killed in a terrible car wreck. Her boyfriend and fiance, who was also in the car, survived. Bob was asked to do the funeral for the young lady, but he did not know her, so he sought out her fiance and said, please help me know more about her. What what was she like? I want to honor her memory. I want to understand her and share some things about her. And uh, the young man, Bob said that the young man was so brokenhearted that he couldn't even talk. But he said, Bob, I'll write a few things down. So the next day he came to the church and he handed Bob a handwritten piece of paper with six or seven sentences on it. And they were each beautiful, each one um, powerful about his love for his fiance who was now gone. But one in particular stood out to him, and Bob said it has always been something that he has remembered and that he'll always remember. One of the things that this young man wrote about his fiance was this. He wrote, Stacy, if Jesus would have given me a choice, I would have died in your place without a single question asked. 
you know, some of you, my estimation is this, some of you don't fully understand how much God loves you. You've heard me or somebody else, you've read it, you know, on your own, but you don't really grasp how high and wide and deep and long the love of God really is for you. But I want you to understand that he died in your place without a single question asked. Jesus did not ask you, wait a minute, before I do this, how much did you sin? Or, wait a minute, before I go to that cross, let's get something straight here. What are you going to do to earn this? Or, you know, are you going to be faithful to me? Not a single question asked. God so loved the world that he sent his only, one and only begotten son. Jesus loved you so much that he died in your place without a single question asked. A great preacher used to close each of his sermons with a simple phrase. He would always say, God loved you first, now you just love him back. That's the opportunity we have right here, right now. If you've never responded to the love that God revealed to you on the cross, I want to invite you to come and do so today. Maybe for the first time you would come and just walk up and say, Pastor, I I want to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I would love to talk with, pray with you. Maybe introduce you to someone else who, who will pray with you as well. Maybe, maybe you need to know more about baptism. Maybe you have other questions. We want, to, we want to meet you right where you're at. Jesus is the one who invites you. Maybe others of you have been there and done that. But as you think about the cross or the nails or the whip, or any of these things, maybe some of that hits you in a way that makes you just want to get up while we're singing and you come and you just want to touch the cross and say, oh dear God, thank you. You can come and look at any of these. You can come and kneel if you wish. But we want you to know that nobody, I mean nobody, the good news is the thing I want us to focus on. Nobody has to leave here worried about being a slave to sin or feeling beat up by what has happened in the past. God wants you to know that he has, he has done all that is required for you to be forgiven. All you have to do is say, yes, Lord, I accept that forgiveness and I'm all yours. So you don't have to be a slave any longer to fear or sin or anything else. Will you stand with us? Let's sing this together. And if you want to come, I invite you, Jesus invites you to come as we sing, as we worship him together.